KPFK on your radio at 90.7 FM, unless, of course, you're in Santa Barbara County, where we're heard at 98.7 FM, and, of course, streaming for the world at kpfk.org. For the world and beyond, who knows? Hey, nice to be with you Friday afternoon in town, and uh, KPFK and your radio, what else could you ask for? Hope you're feeling well, and... Uh, Enjoying your day today. Looking forward to the weekend. I appreciate you sticking around after the news and uh, hope you can hang for a while. It's intervision now till 2 o'clock this afternoon. For the next hour, we talk about spirituality, about comparative religion, free from spirituality. We talk about philosophy, especially the perennial philosophy or the esoteric stuff. What do we mean by that? Somebody asked me the other day, Ben, you drop that word all the time. What the hell does that mean? Well, you can look it up. It's in the dictionary. It simply means for the few. But uh, in a practical sense, what the perennial philosophy or esoteric philosophy, the wisdom, it's really about allegory. It's all about metaphor. And if what drives you crazy about religion is that it's just too damn literal, well, maybe you're a philosopher. Maybe you're uh, one who is more spiritually oriented than religiously oriented. Uh, what's the difference? Well, I guess spirit is a whole lot more personal. You have to be the poet You have to be uh, the one in charge of interpreting symbols and allegory. So that's what we like to do. And the show's also about metaphysics and consciousness. And today we're going to set a theme, as we often do, and feature telephone calls from our listeners with your comments and your questions a little later in the hour. D'Angelo is our engineer. Brooks is our producer. And I'm feeling especially good today, so I'm ready to go and tackle uh, one of our favorite topics. We've only got a couple of shows before fundraising, and so I want to, uh, well, sort of follow up on last week's program and talk about the nature of personal identity. Last week we talked about wisdom on demand. We talked about the nature of realization and revelation and inspiration and 
the so-called cloud of knowing, the rain cloud of knowable things, that it seems that ideas like a cloud can condense and even precipitate down or rain down into our awareness, full-blown, already thought out. I sure hope you had a chance to hear the show last week, because we all know the aha experience. I think it's a safe bet to assume that, you know, pretty much every adult walking down the street has had an experience of some sort of epiphany where it seems the the top of your head opens up and the light pours in, and suddenly you realize or understand something that seems to be arriving again full-blown or already thought out, as if conceived or realized on some other plane of existence. And if we all know that phenomena, instead of sitting around and hoping that we get a good idea or waiting for some sort of insight, maybe we could promote it or engender it. And, of course, a uh, quiet mind, a closed-eye process, a still body and a calm heart and a quiet mind could indeed bring that about. That's much of what we talked about last week. So I thought, well, let's follow it on. Let's go a little farther with this idea, or a little further, I guess, technically, to the nature of identity. Who are you? Are you the one that's thinking up? This wisdom on a higher plane, realizing it in a unconscious way, or are you the one on the receiving end that suddenly gets these gestalts, these kerplop, the whole enchilada pops in? And again, we'll uh, take your telephone calls a little bit later in the hour, so sit back and listen to my commentary here at the top of the radio program. And then uh, we'll open up the uh, telephones in just a few minutes. I think this is real important. The whole idea of identity, personal identity, I guess what's it, well, part of what makes it especially fascinating to me is how disinterested most people are. We have indisputable DNA proof now that every individual is an individual absolutely unique. No two people alike. And we talk about equality before the law, so sometimes people like to say, well, everybody's the same. No, we're not. We're we're not even close to being the same. We don't look alike. Uh, You know, people recognize my voice sometimes in public. Think about how fascinating it is that Somebody could recognize your voice or recognize your face. And there's, you know, hundreds of millions of people that that are in your sphere, uh, billions, of course, on the planet. And, uh, okay, so we're the same in some ways, and we're supposed to be certainly equal before the law. That's where that idea we're all the same comes from. But we're not all the same. We're, <laughs> we're very different. And we have... Uh, for a long time, what, a hundred plus years had the fingerprint evidence, but now, the last couple of decades, DNA proof that uh, there are no two people exactly alike. In fact, there's nothing in nature that's duplicated 
or replicated. Nature doesn't like to do that. She won't do that with snowflakes or grains of sand. And So to a philosopher, this is fascinating. I mean, if you were going to create a universe, uh, why not use some replication? Cut out a pattern or a template and uh, say, well, six snowflakes ought to do. Let's just get six snowflakes. We'll crank those out. Nope. Doesn't happen that way. Every grain of sand, every snowflake, certainly every human being is unique. And yet, who's interested? Who wants to know? This is what fascinates me, that we've got all this evidence that we are one of a kind, and it's the exceptional person who even cares, who who, who is even interested. We are so codependent. We have, most of us, such a need to be liked by other people that we, we will pretend that we are like other people. We will conform in ideas, in politics, in belief systems, in custom, in habit, in dress, in vocation, in avocation, in the things that we do and the reasons that we do them. Major conformity, so strong as our need to be liked by other people that will pretend that we are like other people. And most of us will admit to having a series of roles that we play, different bit parts, depending on who's around. You know, you're one way with your friends. You're another way with another set of friends that, well, I'm not that friendly with them. You're another way at work. You're another way with your parents. You're another way with your kids. You can deny it. But it, I think, for the vast majority of us, I'll even cop to it. I change my language when I get on the radio. I'm not all that different if you meet me in public, but there's certain words I won't use on, <laughs> I won't use on the radio that I would use in public. So, what makes us different and how, what makes us unique and how would we know and why is it even important? And I'm going to start with the third part, talk a little about that. Then I'll go to part two, how would we know? And, uh, then as I say, open up the telephones here, so be ready with your calls, because this is big, this whole idea of everybody's completely unique. And yet, few people are interested at all. And even if you were interested, again, how would you know? And thirdly, why is it important? Let's start there. Why is it important? Why is it important? Well, a lot of reasons. Each of us, of course, bring unique talents and abilities and gifts to the world. And if you don't understand who you are, you'll miss most of those. There's a great quote from the Middle Ages. I, I believe it was uh, a mystic named Taller. Yeah, it was Johann Taller, or Johannes Taller, one of the Rhineland mystics, who said, and this sounds silly at first, but work with it for a second. He said, if I were a king but did not know it, I would not be a king. I know, there's a cynical part of me that says, well, no kidding. I mean, <laughs> but go deeper. 
Uh, if you were a truly wonderful, loving person, but did not know it, you would not be a wonderful, loving person. If you were kind and gentle, if you, uh, I don't know, if you loved music but did not know it, you would not be a musician, you see. So how are you going to know it? That's one huge area, but I want to go deeper in this third part. Why is it important even beyond that? To a premise that I think lies at the root of, well, psychology, certainly, and probably philosophy and theology and anthropology and sociology, too, especially psychology. And that's the idea that everything that hurts emotionally, all so-called negative feelings from sadness and depression, uh, apathy, yeah, even apathy. Apathy hurts. Didn't know that, did you? Yeah, it hurts. Uh, to anger and frustration and irritation and contempt and loneliness and any so-called negative feeling that is not love, joy, happiness, generosity, and so on. Any so-called negative feeling is born of and supported by the parts of yourself that you do not understand. I think that's really important because I see people who are hurting every day and people who don't really know what to do with that. And again, I'm not talking about physical pain so often, although sometimes emotional pain feels as bad as physical pain. Sometimes emotional pain feels worse than physical pain. Is that great Van Morrison song? I think others have done it, that blues song, when you got a heartache, there ain't nothing you can do, he says, you know. You got a headache, little aspirin will ease the pain, but when you got a heartache, there ain't nothing you can do. Great song, he's wrong, frankly, but it's a, <laughs> it's a great tune, and we all know the feeling. Uh, and how tragic and ironic that if you go to a psychologist, a psychotherapist, uh, many of them will just refer you, especially if your emotional pain is severe enough, so to, to a psychiatrist who is a medical doctor who specializes in just those drugs that are designed to treat emotional pain, symptoms of a problem in your life. Take the Paxil, take the Prozac, take the Wellbutrin, and uh, the pain goes away as long as you keep taking the drug, but then the clue goes away as well. Every time I bring up psychoactive drugs and tranquilizers, that's what we used to call them, um, uh, mood-altering drugs or antidepressants, I guess that's the new name, I always get people who call very defensively and say, I want my antidepressants, and I'm better for my antidepressants, and that's cool. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not Tom Cruise saying that you're bad, weak, or wrong. If you do, I'm just saying you don't need to. There's other, there's other ways of dealing with the pain. Again, emotional pain. And essentially, in a word, it's understanding. Now let's go over this again, because you may not even agree with my basic premise, in which case 
You may want to call in a few minutes here when I open the telephones. I'm saying again that everything that hurts emotionally, all so-called negative feelings, are born of, rooted in, and supported by what you do not understand about about yourself as a unique individual. And the antidote is to understand. As you understand yourself, your pain falls away. How do you do that? Well, you use the pain just like you would use the physical pain to better understand the illness or injury that you have, to tend to it, to care for it. This is the, this is the big secret of psychology. Hell, um, who was it? Uh, one of my favorite quotes, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, knowledge is the antidote to fear. That's just a slight variation. Uh, I would say understanding is the antidote to emotional pain, or that's what fear is. They call it anxiety, stress, nervousness, worry, apprehension. All right, well, everything that hurts is rooted in fear, anxiety, stress. And all of that is born of what you don't know about yourself. So the antidote, know thyself, understand yourself. Yeah, but Michael... Even if I were interested in that, and I'm not sure I am, because nobody that I know is interested in who they are as individuals. So even if I believed you, how would I do that? And that's part two. So I'm working backwards on these three premises. Part three, where I began, where I'm beginning, is this premise that if it hurts emotionally, it's a symptom of something you don't know about yourself. The second part, the first part being, you know, who am I? And uh, the second part is, how would I know? Well, again, you have to face the fear. One of the most profound realizations I ever had in meditation, and I've been meditating 35 years, something like that, and boy, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, and it's still so rich. It just burst into my mind, just sitting quietly, watching my breath, and it was like the top of my head opened up, and kabam, the light came in. And I'm sort of auditory, so I tend to sort of hear new ideas rather than see them. And it was almost like I heard myself say, to some other part of myself. Michael, the best parts of you are hidden where you're most afraid to look. And then there was silence. So I mentally repeated that again. I wanted to be sure to to remember. The best parts of me are hidden where I'm most afraid to look, I thought to myself. So that's what I'm supposed to do with my fear. That's what I'm supposed to do when my knee's bouncing and my stomach's boiling and uh, I'm feeling anxious and stressed and tense. I'm supposed to look right into the middle of it, right at the heart of darkness. I have to move deeper into the shadow. Yes. Into the parts of me that scare me, directly into the belly of the beast. Yep. And by moving into that hurt toward the parts of me that are unknown, I will somehow find the best in me. Yep. 
Try it. And so that's the process. In Buddhism, this is known as well as in psychotherapy and analysis. In Buddhism, it's called the hero's journey. Sometimes references are made in mysticism to being a spiritual warrior. And you say, what the hell is a spiritual warrior? What is the hero's journey? It's a, uh, this is even what jihad means. Don't tell the fundamentalist Muslims, but the majority of Muslims, the vast majority of Islam knows that a jihad is a very personal journey to discover and eradicate through understanding your own personal demons. Okay. And esoterically, we could say the same thing about the Christian crusade, except I don't think, in this case, most Christians are aware of that. They think of the crusade as uh, kill them all and let God sort it out, right? Get on your horse, get a spear and a sword, and go kill people that you disagree with. God will love that crusade. But it's really a, it's really a, a, a personal journey right at directly toward and into what hurts. And you get these insights, you get these understandings, you get these little epiphanies, these ahas, when you're willing to do that. And to some extent it works, whether you're mowing the lawn or doing the dishes or driving the car, but gosh, if you would just sit down 10 minutes a day for 10 or 15 minutes and close your eyes and really dedicate yourself to knowing yourself, with a still body, a calm heart, and a quiet mind, the whole process gets accelerated and amplified. So here we are, these unique beings, unlike anybody else, with gifts and talents and abilities that most people never discover. They get old, they die, uh, they never do find the best in them. Their song remains unsung, as some people have said. And so, if you find that as tragic as it truly is, and really would like to know yourself as a unique individual, to discover those gifts and talents and abilities, but moreover, to have a process that you can rely upon, a valid and valuable process of self-discovery, of using a kind of a meditation to go directly into everything that hurts or upsets you, that angers you, that leaves you feeling sad and depressed. Oh, there's so much hurt in the world. And it's our hurt. And we can blame other people for the fact that we hurt, but you end up hurting. And you can go away and isolate yourself, remove yourself from society, lock yourself in the corner of the closet and pull clothes around you where nobody will ever find you. Go to the most remote area of the Northwest Territories, Northwest Territories, and you take the hurt with you because it's your hurt and nobody's doing it to you. It's a reflection of not knowing who you are. And you live in a world where most people, in spite of the DNA and fingerprint proof, just don't care at all. So that's the whole idea. You discover talents and gifts and abilities. Your song, instead of remaining unsung, you begin to sing it. You begin to 
as Joseph Campbell would say, follow your bliss. You find that there's a compass and a map in the center of your heart, not in the mind so much as in what you care about. And you use that intention, that caring nature, to move into, and uh, what do I mean by moving into? To contemplate, to introspect, to put your attention upon, to ponder, to mull over, okay? To just sit with it and turn it over and look at it. This sadness, this ache, this loneliness, this anger, this fear. Take some ownership of it. It's a symptom of something you don't know about yourself. And the way we know that that's true is that as we gain the insight and the understanding, the hurt goes away. As soon as you get that, oh, my God, no wonder I feel that way. Well, hold on. Oh, yeah, I felt like this ever since I was a kid. And, oh, yeah, well, no wonder. Now I'm remembering why. I've. Oh, my, you think, oh, I see. And maybe you never took a, a single course in psychology, but suddenly you're wiser than Freud or Jung or Adler or Skinner or or pearls or any of them, because it's your hurt. And the realization is there, if you would but move deeper and deeper and deeper into what hurts, deeper into what you don't know about yourself. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And I think we're standing on the threshold of this, nothing less than a whole new sense of who we really are. Osama bin Laden and George Bush... Advertisers, movers, and shakers, and opinion makers who use fear on a regular basis to manipulate us, to influence our behavior, would lose all of their power if we but knew the truth of who we really are as unique individuals and honor our emotional feelings. Hell, men are taught that it's a weakness to be sensitive. Men are taught as boy children by mom and dad... Yeah, by mom and dad, that, well, Michael, your sister gets to feel her feelings, but you and your brother cannot. Uh, you'll be a sissy. We don't want no, we don't want any male sissies in this house. What my dad used to say, no son of mine, blah, blah, blah. So, guys, we're getting clear messages that any sensitivity to emotions is a weakness. In fact, it makes you the spiritual warrior. It's the hero's journey to face your fear and to be sensitive to it. The strength that's found in a willingness to be vulnerable to yourself, I don't mean vulnerable to others, but self-vulnerable, if there's such a word, is extraordinary. And I'd love to know what you think about this identity. Again, we've got the DNA proof. Are you interested? Would you like to know? Okay. Why? Well, because if you were a king and did not know it, you could not be a king. Your happiness depends upon it. Your sense of purpose, of meaning, of fulfillment, of satisfaction, your happiness and your success in life depends upon, requires that we better understand who we are. 
You're not going to find that with your eyes open out in the world. You're going to have to close your eyes. And not only will you find your unique gifts and talents and abilities, but you'll find the antidote to everything that hurts you. You begin to see your emotional pain the way most people look at physical pain as a valuable symptom about yourself. Your emotions don't tell you about the person that brought the emotion up or out. It's what I often call the second secret. Now that you've seen the DVD and you know about the first secret, the law of mental attraction, now... Maybe we can look at the second secret in order, the law of emotional responsibility, emotional ownership. Somebody can stimulate your negative feelings and make you feel sad, but the sadness is a response. It's personal. It's deeply intimate and profound. And when you realize through introspection, contemplation, meditation of any kind, The technique is just the willingness to sit down and shut up and set aside a few minutes every day to just take a look. And it'll happen spontaneously. So you'll discover who you are, your gifts and your talents. You'll learn to be better and better at the process of healing your emotional hurt. And then we go from coping to truly accelerating our personal growth, to really making a difference in the world. Now you begin to understand that the reason you exist is to discover and develop who you are. Could it be that simple? I think we've all pretty much (laughs) come to the understanding, one way or another, that uh, this materialist American dream of, oh, gosh, if I only owned more things. Oh, if only my car was newer. If only my spouse was more beautiful or handsome. (laughs) You know, if only my kids did better in school. Oh, if only George Bush wasn't such a fascist. Then my life would work. (laughs) I don't know. I don't think so. Unless we're willing to, as the Greeks used to say, know thyself. Or Lao Tzu in China, about the same time, 2,500 years ago or so, saying, one who knows others is wise enough, but one who knows oneself is enlightened. That's what it's all about. And I would argue that even the uh, religious admonitions to seek God, to put your attention on the kingdom of heaven, to find God, I think is the same thing. To find yourself, look for God. To find God, look into yourself. It's really the same thing. So what do you think? Does this make sense to you? you? Are you tired of the hurt? Are you you tired of being angry or sad or depressed or lonely or feeling alienated or sometimes just uninspired, anxious or nervous and stressed, panic attacks and phobias and fears? Are you willing to consider the possibility 
that it all dances around confusion about self, a failure to really even be interested in your uniqueness and individuality. Love to know what you think. Let's open up the phones. We'll take a short break and come back with your calls. The nature of personal identity, the source of that wisdom on demand that we talked about last week, our topic today. 818-985-5735, 985-KPFK in the 818 area code. We'll be back with your calls right after this. Michael Benner, it's Intervision on KPFK. That's who you're listening to, 90.7 FM KPFK. For all of Southern California, out of Santa Barbara County, 98.7 FM, and streaming for the universe at kpfk.org. Free podcasts of this program are available at kpfk.org. It's also this program archived for 90 days. If you're not up to speed on the podcast thing just yet, you will be eventually, whether they call it podcast or whatever they call it. Everybody's going to be doing it sooner or later. So archived at kpfk.org, you can subscribe there. You can subscribe at the iTunes Music Store. Simply type my name into the little search box. It'll come up for you. Or my website, The Ageless Wisdom. Dot com. Okay? TheAgelessWisdom.com. I also have a business site. People sometimes say, what's MichaelBenner.com? I saw that there. I googled your name. I saw MichaelBenner.com. I call that my sanitized site. It's for straight people. <laughs> it is. It's for, it's my special website for people that wear suits and ties. Guys that wear wingtips and, you know, the business end. You gotta have, <laughs> you gotta have a sanitized site. You can't go to business and talk about meditation. You have to call it something else. So, you might even get a kick out of comparing the two. I know I enjoyed writing them years ago. So for business people, michaelbenner.com, for the gang, for the crew, it's theagelesswisdom.com. So we're talking about the nature of personal identity here. We're talking about who are we really? How is it that you don't care? Oh, you say you do? Well, that's great. How about most of your friends? Why do they not care? If we have the fingerprint evidence and the DNA proofs that we're unique, why wouldn't you want to know? And then it begs the question, well, how would I know, and what difference does it make? That's what we've been talking about. Let's go to the phones and see what you think, and we'll start in Temecula with David. You're on KPFK Intervision with Michael Benner. Hi, David. Michael? Yes, sir. Boy, I can't believe it's 22 years since I saw you at the, what is it, the Philosophical Research Society over there on uh, Las Feliz? Yeah, I used to speak there. Yeah. Where, where you been, man? It's been a long time. Well, I've been a lot of places. Oh. But uh, part of my story, and just what I want to share real briefly, is that uh, about 11 years ago, I went in to see a doctor for a physical pain in my neck. Got bounced around from department to department, and eventually they said, uh, what are you doing about your depression? And I said, what depression? It says, it says on your chart here you're depressed. They put me on Prozac. 
Two weeks later, I was suicidal. Um, ended up going to jail because of a bad scene that all, I think, stemmed from that. Was ordered by the judge when I got out to seek further psychological treatment, put on other meds. I spent 10 years on these drugs feeling horrible every day. Wow. And they say, well, you're not feeling better? We'll up the dose, or we'll add a little of this to your regimen. And uh, finally one day I said, you know, I couldn't feel any worse than I feel right now, so I'm going to stop taking the meds. And I said this to one of my regular MDs, and she went, mm-hmm, which was enough go-ahead for me. And about two weeks later, my life started getting better, and it's been about two years now, and I'm myself again. Did you go cold turkey on those meds? Yes, I actually did. And I'm not recommending this to anybody, and I'm not saying these meds don't help some people, but in my case, I think they really serve to keep me in a state of insecurity and depression. All anyone has to do is pick up a copy of the physician's desk reference. Yep. I think hell, there you can get them at Costco for God's sakes, or uh, there's other versions like the pill book, and look up side effects, and you will see that, ironically, uh, one of the side effects, one of countless side effects of antidepressants, is often depression. And suicidal ideology. Now, yeah. in Europe, they've just come up with all this information how in patients under 18, Especially certain drugs cause suicidal ideation. Right. What makes them think there's a certain special line that you cross at 18 that uh, suddenly you're immune to that effect? I think there are plenty of adults that have suicidal ideation right now caused by their meds. So they go back to their doctor saying, I just don't feel right and I'm still hopeless. Yeah. And they just keep giving them more pills. Well, these are yeah. uh, really, you know, you're reminding me of an interview I heard on the radio maybe 25 years ago or more. A woman at the time had written a book called I'm Dancing as Fast as I Can. I've heard of it. And it was about her addiction to, was it Valium or Vicodin or one of the powerful, popular uh medicines, dare we call them that, and and her horrific addiction to it. And many of these other popular drugs, the new generation of designer antidepressant, um, is the same way. You can't just go cold turkey. So I don't want anybody who's listening to us. No, I don't I don't recommend that to anyone don't just either, stop. though it went well for me. <laughs> yeah, you gotta ask the doctor to wean you off of that stuff. Yeah. But yeah. I mean I spent day after day with the first thought in my mind going, How can I end this horrible cycle of my life? So and how are you feeling now? I'm feeling great. I've got hope. I'm finally more pro- you know, productive and uh, creative again. I'm a songwriter, I'm doing things. What do you do when you do get sad or depressed? I talk to a friend, I share it, I put it down in a song. I Actually, I sort of savor my sadness now for what it is, because it's part of what makes my life rich. <laughs> you know, it's There's a word for that. You know? There's a word for sweet sadness. Yeah. Melancholy, do you know that word? Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm steeped in that sometimes. Yeah, but, me too. But I'm not so sad anymore. In fact, I'm a far more hopeful person that now that I got off the meds, and I think for my... There's a stigma of being on the drugs, too, that makes yeah. you feel... Like there's something wrong with you. Yeah. You know, once you've crossed that line, well, I'm admitting there's something wrong with my head. I better take these drugs. That can't make anyone feel good about themselves either. Yeah. Okay, yeah. David. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you. Mike. Appreciate thank the call All after right. 22 years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still here. Good. All right. Yeah, we're survivors, aren't we? 
And again, let me hasten to add, besides the uh, rejoinder we stuck in there about don't just stop doing these drugs, they're far too dangerous for you to just quit. You're going to have to go back to your doctor and say, wean me off of this. And remind the medical doctor who's in charge. Not the doctor. You are. Okay? Your doctor is not the decider. <laughs> you are. But uh, also hasten to add that uh, I know every time I do a show like this, I get calls from people, some of them quite desperate, many of them really angry people. I'll get emailed tonight from people who, I love my meds, and don't you dare, you sound like Tom Cruise and Brooks, what was it, Brooks Shields? No, man, I'm not saying that. If that's the way you want to do it, fine. I just know that in the vast majority of cases, it's unnecessary and dangerous. But if that's your trip, if that's what you want to do, fine, cool. But uh, you can't shut down a radio station that's willing to talk about non-drug alternatives, right? You can't expect us to shut up. We're not going to play the game. So if you're happy on your meds and they're working for you, fine. Again, we're talking about these antidepressants. And I don't know how, once you start taking, I've seen clients that are on two, three, four of these things, some sort of crazy cocktail. All these drugs mixing up in your body, little of this, little of that. They don't know what, what the outcome is. Turn your body into a test tube. You don't know what you're going to, and, and again, it's not like, well, then just suffer. It's like sit quietly, breathe, relax, learn to meditate. Study yoga, take a martial arts class, express, what, what was David just saying? I express myself. If I'm sad, I put it into a song and sing a sad song or dance a sad dance or paint a sad picture or go for a sad walk or pet your sad cat. It helps it. <laughs> you gotta go right into it. Face it. The Heart of Darkness, that's what it's about. In the San Fernando Valley, Malcolm, you're on KPFK, Intervision with Michael Benner. Hello. Hi, Michael. How you doing, man? Better and better, thank you. All right. Always a great topic, man. I love it. Thank you. Hey, um, you know, I was curious. We've talked before, and I wanted to get your slant on something. You were talking about the knowledge of self or knowing yourself, and I wondered, is there a difference between knowledge and knowing. And if so, what would that be? I think so. I would say between knowledge and understanding. Um, and I think, I mean, we're, we're sort of picking nits here. They're fine points and, and very smart people could disagree. So I'll just give you my take on it. I think when knowledge is understood, um, no, no, I can't use it that way. When knowledge is integrated, uh -huh. when it's comprehensively integrated into your life in a way that can be applied in practical ways, you're beginning to understand the knowledge. And uh, this is part of what school teachers call, I think they call it the taxonomy of learning, which is you're exposed to the information, you you learn the information, you know the information, but then you've got to apply the information in the world. 
as one of the most challenging areas in schools and for teachers. So that would be my take on it. You you can know it, but you don't understand it until you can apply it in your life. Okay, okay. And and that's the way I would answer the difference between knowing and knowledge, or how did you say it? Um, knowledge versus knowing. Knowledge versus knowing. Yeah, it comes from the word gnosis, of course, to know or a lot of people wouldn't even distinguish between knowing and understanding, but if you don't mind me shaving hairs, I would. Yeah, no problem. You know. All right. Yeah, I was just, I was, I was curious because you know we were talking, you know, you were talking on the radio, and I, I was really enjoying part of the talk, wherein you were saying, you know, you have to know yourself, and that's you know the edict from all of these great philosophies, these perennial philosophies. But I, I wondered if knowledge doesn't get in the way of knowing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, okay. We got to ratchet it up a couple of levels then. <laughs> yeah. We got to talk about the other self then. Okay. Uh, you're absolutely right. There is a point. We, we, we touched on this last week and okay. this, I missed last week's that, show, unfortunately. That, that's okay. Probably a lot of people listening didn't hear last week's show and we only touched on it then. The idea that, um, how did I say it? There's a, uh, I, I, I can only paraphrase, but there's some Chinese wisdom that's, I think again, Lao Tzu that says, to know things we add to, mm-hmm. to, ah, to attain knowledge we add to, mm-hmm. to attain wisdom we take away take from. Away. Yes, that's Lao Tzu. Yeah, okay, there you go. So you, you, that's where you were headed anyway, huh? Well, I wanted some clarification on it. You know, I always enjoy further input from people who, you know, have been around a while. Well, I would say simply as a persona, as a apparently separative physical self in form, mm-hmm. there is knowledge and there is understanding. Yes, yes. But the spiritual essence of who I am is formless and timeless, uh, and the source of wisdom, a higher self, if you mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. And on that level, thoughts can be forms, uh-huh. thought forms, emotions can be forms, thought forms, that actually do get in the way of a more profound understanding of things. Okay. And so... um if you get an opportunity, I'd like to hear a show more about that. Yeah? Yeah. That would be, to me, that would be something that would be really beneficial. Well, that's real esoteric. Uh, see, that requires a discussion with the fact that there's two selves. I'm trying, <laughs> and I'm willing to do it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, here yeah. I am, here I am dedicating a show to people trying to get people interested in knowing who they appear to be as the physical dense form, and you're saying, how about that higher self? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. That's cool. Wisdom, a higher self, if mm-hmm. you will. Mm-hmm. And on that level, thoughts can be forms, uh-huh. thought forms. Emotions can be forms, thought forms, that actually do get in the way of a more profound understanding of things. Okay. And so... Um, if you get an opportunity, I'd like to hear a show more about that. Yeah? 
Yeah, that would be, to me, that would be something that would be really beneficial. Well, that's real esoteric. Uh, see, that requires a discussion with the fact that there's two cells. I'm trying, <laughs> and I'm willing to do it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, here yeah. I am, here I am dedicating a show to people trying to get people interested in knowing who they appear to be as the physical dense form, and you're saying, how about that higher self? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. That's cool, man. Do you yeah. know the story in uh, the beginning of Eckhart Tolle's book, Power and No. Love? Oh, wow. I tell this I tell this story three times a week, I bet. I love it. Uh, if he never writes another book, and he has, but if this was just so profound, he, again, Eckhart Tolle, in uh, The Power of Now, very first chapter, he talks about waking up in the middle of the night so depressed. One of those deals where it feels like the elephant is standing on your chest, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just suicidal. If there was a gun around, I'd probably end it all just so down. He'd been depressed before, he said, but never like this. Mm -hmm. And three thoughts went through his head. The first one is, I can't stand myself when I feel like this, mm-hmm. which I think we can all relate to. Absolutely. You know, I hate myself when I act that way or whatever. Huh? But the second and third thoughts were quite profound. The second thought is, whoa, wait a minute, how many of me are there? <laughs> oh, I like that. If I can't stand myself... Right. Who's, who's not standing? <laughs> uh, who else is in this game? <laughs> right, right. And the third thought, even more profound, was if there are two or more of me, maybe only one of them is real. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, it would be the I that is getting really fed up with this silly self. Uh-huh. The higher self. Right. And that's the soul on its own plane. This is a great taboo that religion will... Religion freaks out when you start talking about the pre-existence of the soul and that your soul is already in heaven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what needs redemption is the ego, not the soul. The soul is doing fine. And so that's that reservoir we talked about last week, that rain cloud of noble things. That's the higher self, and it breaks through from time to time with these epiphanies and insights and, you know, there are those two aspects of self. So we could say there's three of us. There is the God, us, the soul, us, and the ego. Or maybe better said, in the, in the totality of things, uh, within the um, divine oneness, there are two of us. There is the emanation that is the spiritual soul on its own plane, the so-called higher self, and then there is the second extension that soul incarnating in the physical form. Mm -hmm. And not only is the body a form, but your thoughts are forms, your emotions are forms that exist on shared planes, and ultimately they would stand between you and a higher understanding of yourself. So we can use thoughts to a certain point, but then we have to move to uh, uh, a quality of mindfulness that is really free of thinking. And, yeah, I've got a responsibility on a show about philosophy to talk about it. I'll be happy to talk about it. Cool. Prod me. Okay. Email me. All right. Uh, Demand it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for calling. Yeah, you bet. Thank you, Michael. Have a great weekend. You too. Let's go to uh, Los Angeles and Nadine. You're on KPFK with Michael Benner. Hi, Michael. 
Um, thanks for taking my call. Is Nadine really your name? Yeah, I'm French. Oh. <laughs> There's a Chuck Berry song. Called. I know. Why can't you be true? My mom told yeah, me. Yeah, I yeah. love that song. Yeah, I know. I like it too. Yeah, so a great name. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Listen, um, I've been listening to you for quite a long time. I mean, occasionally, I mean, when I have the time, and listening to the conversation today as well. And in regards to this knowing you pain, um, I mean, I hear you really well. But as a as a woman, I feel that sometimes you guys get a little bit abstract and conceptual. Because for me, feeling, you know, it, it, it deals more with feeling, having to feel the pain rather than knowing the pain. And in order to go into that, a lot of the time it's the resistance that we run into, which becomes an act out that this is at this point that we eat, we take drugs, and, you know, we do all kinds of stuff, the big depression. And once you get into the feeling, then you feel the feeling. And, you know, this is the, becoming the knowing that you're talking about. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And we'll even apologize if... <laughs> If if that's what it takes to say to uh, the women or to the even more sensitive <laughs> men, hey, I'm sorry, I'm so cerebral when I talk about. No, you're great. You're great. You know, I I I, I think the challenge is to all of us to allow ourselves, uh, without being encumbered by language and words, which right. are, again, separated forms, to yeah. just sit fat in the feeling. In whether this, yeah, most people use, like, you other callers we're talking about. One of the, the guys mentioned, you know, all the psychological or the philosophy getting in the way. It's all words, because yeah. usually a feeling has no words. It's yeah. just a memory, and it's just something that you have to stay put, yeah. and it's usually pre- pre-verbal. But I'm on the radio. Yes, and I understand. I do, I do. I'm so sorry. I can't say feel <laughs> this, Nate. I have to use words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. But you're right. I, I understand. And that's the challenge. To and us. another thing I wanted to say is that, I mean, I, I've seen it with myself, um, with depression and all. Food has such a big impact on the way we feel, you know, especially with depression, the sugar, uh, you know, and all, you know, all the refined products. So it's not just because of the world outside. It's, it's what makes our body because what makes our body and everything that we are is also the food that we eat. No question. Every single day. And whether we exercise and how much sleep Precisely. we get. The body, uh, the physical self is a triangle. It's yeah. the physical body, it's the emotions mm-hmm. and the mind. Right. And changing or affecting any one of the three legs of the triangle will obviously affect the other two. Exactly, but so many people don't think about it this way. Yeah, but it's a very good point. Yeah. Listen, thank you for being you, huh? Well, thank you. <laughs> Nadine, honey, is that you? <laughs> it's me, it's me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Moving toward a coffee-colored Cadillac. Yeah. I love that song. You play it in the F, guys. Let's take one more real quick. Chris, you're on KPFK with Michael Benner. Hello. Hi, just got a minute, Chris. Okay, I was just wondering, you you spoke about being vulnerable to yourself. Uh Uh-huh. How about being vulnerable to people who you want to learn how to trust, kind of like burying your soul and telling them what's really going on inside of you? I mean, how important is that? What's your take on that? Wonderful question, and of course, uh, I would have to concede the point, but there is an order. And if trust is a feeling, and if all your feelings are really primarily your feelings, then any issue we have about trusting others is ultimately and primarily, do I trust myself as a judge of character? And so unless and until you get a better sense of, do I trust my judgment of other people, then any question about whether he or she is trustworthy uh, 
is sort of premature. Okay, could you simplify that for me? Think, I mean, think of, think, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. I'll personalize it for you. Think of the person, you don't have to tell me a name because I don't know you or your friends, but yeah. whoever is the individual you were just thinking about. Uh-huh. And you don't know whether you can trust him or her. Mm-hmm. Take ownership of that and say, do I have trust issues in my life? Are there other people I'm not sure whether I can trust? Is there a reason in my life that I... Well, I understand that it's about me not being able to trust people, but I think at a certain point you have to take a chance and say, well, you know, uh, I might not trust them. They might hurt me if I open up, but I'm willing to take that chance because I don't want to live in hiding anymore. I want them to know who I am. How about healing the part that doesn't trust or hasn't trusted and learning to trust more? Right, but I, what I'm saying is maybe that has to happen in a relationship. Well, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, I just think the order is important, but it's right. not totally linear. There's going to be some back and forth. If the people in our, or I'll say it this way, as our lovers and friends become more trustworthy or we learn to trust them more, then that will help us trust ourselves more which will then allow us to be more trustworthy of others and back and forth and back and forth. But Yeah, it's not linear. I know no, no. it can happen. They but can the happen. primary order and the part that most of us miss is, do I trust myself as a judge of character? Right. Nice talking to you. Okay, thank you. For We're going to slide. Thank you. Take Good care. Point. That's always true. Anytime you have an issue about somebody else, own it and uh, turn that spade of soil over and see what you come up with. Hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. That was a lot of fun. We'll do it again. Uh, D'Angelo Jones, my uh, engineer, as always, thank you for that. And Brooks for uh, producing Dream Key, my wife, for all her help in doing this radio program. Join us next week. We'll be here at 1 o'clock every Friday at 1 for Inner Vision.